Hey, Leah. Hey, Fallon. And hey, listeners. Uh, We are the hosts of a podcast called The Secret Life of Canada. We are a history podcast. Yeah, and we've covered topics, things like the gold rush or the bay blanket. Yes. Kind of unconventional stories, though, that you might have missed in your Canadian history class. So we're here to uncover those secrets. That's right. Check us out wherever you get your podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. You are listening to Alone, a love story, and I'm Michelle Parisi. Chapter 17, The Lonely What Lonely Feels Like Loneliness is every cliché imaginable. It's me, adrift on an ocean. Unmoored, nothing to be anchored to, no land for miles. It's me, standing at the bottom of a well, a canyon, a crater, with nothing but vultures circling overhead, waiting for me to just give up and die already. It's me waiting, but I don't even know what I'm waiting for. It's me, except my humor, warmth, and self-esteem have been siphoned out, replaced by a wispy, petulant yearning that everyone can spot from a distance and smell up close. Loneliness seeps out of my pores. It floats around me like a cloud, no matter how I try to be normal to be nonchalant, to be a person that's okay with being alone. Lonely is a parasite that invaded my body and now I'm host to it. I serve it hors d'oeuvres and champagne. Lonely is there with me in the bar, getting me round after round so I can forget why I'm there in the first place. It drunk texts people who really wish I would stop doing that. Lonely flags down a cab for me and whoever this guy is beside me. It wakes me up in the morning and says hello, first thing, so I know it's still there with me. Lonely squeezes my hand when I drop my daughter off at school, knowing I won't see her again for six whole days. Lonely gets my sunglasses out for me so the other parents don't have to see me crying again as I exit the school. Lonely is the most consistent thing in my life now, the only constant. It's always there for me when I don't need it. Loneliness is my new boyfriend, I guess. We walk arm in arm through the city streets. Solo time. One of my good friends is the exact opposite. She's always saying, I love my solo time. She just loves being in her apartment, absent of anyone. I don't get it. 
What do you do there? I ask her. And she says, I make tea, I take baths, I watch movies, I bake cupcakes. I call her an old lady, but envy winds its way through me. I want so badly to feel happy on my own with baking and baths, but I can't. Why bake cupcakes if Bertie isn't there? Why have a bath if not with a lover? I've never even watched a movie on my own, ever, in all my life. What's the point if there's no one to share these things with? You'll love it too one day, says Solo Time. She's right. I won't feel this way forever. There will come a time, years later, when I do learn to love being alone in my apartment. Sometimes. But right now, in this part of my story, all I can do is plan every moment of my life, fill every blank square in my calendar with something, someone. Solo time tells me to just do what I need to do. She doesn't judge me or tell me to change. She makes me tea and listens to my cringy dating stories and responds with her own stories of blissful Saturday nights enjoying her own company. She's very upbeat. It's part of her charm. Independent and assured, solo time is both young and old at once, perfectly happy with the life she's built for herself. She doesn't cry, ever, and jokes that she has no emotions, but it isn't true. She sees how hard this is for me. She tells me how brave she thinks I am for choosing joint custody. So brave, because you lose her half the time, leaving me alone, really alone, while two-thirds of my little family live across the street, far away, so close, as I navigate my own solo time. It ain't me. He always wanted me to sing It Ain't Me, Babe by Bob Dylan. I'd be strumming my guitar, and that was always his request. He could never remember the name and would always ask me to play the sad, sad song. I found this endearing, adorable, but it also used to worry me a bit, his obsession with a song that pretty much says he's just not that into you. The song that I'd always imagined was Dylan's kiss-off to Joan Baez. Here they were, this perfect couple, but he was like, nah. I'd imagine poor Joan listening to the lyrics, realizing that Bob didn't love her quite as much as she thought he did. One line in particular would physically hurt when I sang it. Go out back in the night, babe. Everything inside is made of stone There's nothing in here moving And anyway, I'm not alone Go melt back in the night, babe Everything inside is made of stone There's nothing in here moving And anyway, I'm not alone Oh, that line 
Can you imagine it? She's standing at his door there to convince him that their love is worth fighting for. And he tells her he's nothing but stone, motionless, not worth it. And look, he can prove it. See, there's somebody else here already with me. Somebody else who isn't you because I'm not the one for you. I'm not the one. Why did this particular line haunt me so much back then? Back there in the thick of our happiness, in the midst of complete commitment. Did part of me have a hunch that one day he would turn to stone? Or was it just that my deepest subconscious fear was to be left outside of a doorway, heart shredded as I'm told to melt back into the night? I couldn't bear the thought. But even though I dreaded getting to that line, sitting there like a pit of despair in the third verse, I would always sing it for him. I'd spend a minute trying to remember the chords and then launch into the world's saddest song. As I'd sing, he'd continue doing whatever he was doing, cooking dinner or marking papers, and I wasn't sure he was really listening. But when the song ended, he would always say something like, You sing that so well. Or... Thanks for singing me the sad, sad song. When Bertie was born, he'd say to her, Doesn't your mom have a beautiful voice? You should Google the lyrics of that Bob Dylan song. Go ahead, I'll wait. You need to read how deeply sad it is, how apt it is, how significant it is, that for 12 years, he asked me to sing him a song that basically describes the way he would one day feel about me. Or maybe always did. A song that says, I do care about you, but I will never love you the way you love me. I just don't. I just can't. I'm not the one for you. It ain't me, babe. Love of your life and nothing more, but it ain't me, babe. No, 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 it ain't me, babe. It ain't me you're looking for, babe. I know, Rogue. I know. I get it. I fucking get it already. How She Sees It When I was pregnant, the husband and I had only one hope that our crazy personalities would cancel each other out and we'd have a calm and gentle daughter. That didn't happen. All the qualities we share, determined, impetuous, quick-tempered, headstrong, they didn't cancel out at all. Instead, we had a child who was all those things, times a thousand. We called her the Uber-Us. She was, and sometimes still is, a force to be reckoned with. In the second summer after the bomb, her sharp, inquisitive mind becomes focused on the breakup. One day, the ex-husband drops her off at my place. As the door closes behind him, Bertie, six years old at the time, turns and yells at me. I don't think it's fair that Dad gets to make the decision about where we live. What are you talking about? I bought this apartment. I chose it. 
Yeah, but he's the one that didn't want to live with us in the house anymore, so he's the one who decided we should live in separate apartments. And you didn't even fight for it. She's got his face as she says this. How his jaw would get tight just before a giant wall would go up. Birdie, you don't know if I did or didn't fight for it. I'm trying to be calm, trying not to burst into tears, trying not to phone him and fly into a rage over why he decided to tell her it was his fault, when all along I'd been pretending, achingly, that it was both our decision, so she wouldn't hate him for it. But here she is now, hating me. Here she is, six years old, telling me I didn't fight hard enough to save my marriage. According to the ex-husband, she doesn't have these kinds of conversations with him. As if he hasn't already gotten a free ride, he's been spared this too. I pull her close to me, her blue eyes blazing into my brown ones, and I just let the tears fall. You can't make someone live with you if they don't want to anymore, Bertie. She hugs me, as tight as her little body can, and I feel like the worst mother in the world. She shouldn't be comforting me. Not again. Hi, I'm Caitlin Prest. And I am here in your ear to tell you about a very incredible new show called Asking For It. Asking For It is a darkly comedic series that follows a queer femme singer whose history of violence finds her no matter how many times she runs away. It has an original soundtrack and it'll make you laugh, cry, and feel a little bit less alone. Asking For It. Subscribe now. A few nights earlier, as I was reading her a bedtime story, I got so overwhelmed by a memory of him, my eyes filled with tears. She snapped to attention. It's okay to cry, Mom, but don't cry. Look! She jumps off the bed and makes a series of crazy faces while hopping on one foot. I laugh. Oh, my little bird. Then she says seriously. I know it's about Dad. My heart breaks in a thousand new ways. Maybe he'll come back to you, Mom. I can't believe she just said that. I don't think so, Bertie. He's definitely not. But what if he did? God, how do I answer that? How could I tell her that even if, in some magical storybook way, he decided he wanted to be together again... I couldn't do it. How could I say to her that sometimes loving someone just isn't enough? So I just say, he won't come back. But listen, we've got each other and this great place, and he's right across the street, so that's cool. And you've got both of us in your life. It isn't perfect, bird, but it's all right. We'll get used to it. We still have love all around us, all the time. Yeah, Mom, we have love. For sure we do. And she nestles closer to me. The memory I had was this. Every time I would say I was cold, no matter where we were or what we were doing, he'd immediately say, want my shirt? And begin to take it off. 
It was such a stupid joke we had with each other. It's hardly even a joke. But I laughed every single time. He'd say it with his sincere good boy face on, the one where his eyes look like Bambi. He'd have his t-shirt half off, even though we'd be in a restaurant or a movie theater, and I'd be dying of embarrassment, but also laughing. So stupid, but it was our thing. So that's what made me cry in her bed. Because a dumb character in the book I was reading her said they felt cold. The Matchmaker. The Matchmaker loves me. God, I love you, she says. I love her too. How are you single? She asks. And I shoot back. How are you single? And here it is. The same question, the same conversation, it just keeps on happening. Every time I meet new women, we say to each other, how are you single? And we mean it. It's not just false propping up. All of the women at my work, the friends of friends I've met, even the matchmaker herself, all smart, funny, good-looking, grounded, and with good jobs, blah, 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 the list goes on. You're still young, I say to the matchmaker, who's 32. I say this to any single woman who isn't staring 40 in its stupid face like I am. I say this to all of them, as if it's somehow easier for them, because they're slightly younger, and they don't have joint custody of a child and an ex-husband who lives across the street. At this point, I'm lost, down a well of self-pity. When I'm down there, I don't even realize that everyone has their own stories, their own demons, their own struggles. And so I say, you have time, you're still young, you have hope. Because they don't have a giant cesarean scar that runs across their abdomen. They don't have a daily needle to inject because of a stupid anything can happen or not happen disease like MS. They don't have to hide the disease or fret about the right time to mention the child or the ex-husband. I agonize over the disclosure of these things. And I forget sometimes, when I'm down the well, that other people have things to agonize over too. Jesus Christ, I'm not the only one. I don't tell any of the guys I meet about the MS. There just isn't any point. I already feel like I'm a scary, baggage-filled old lady. Why add to the pile? I don't tell the matchmaker about the MS either. It never comes up. I answer all of her questions truthfully, though, because what's the point otherwise? I want her to match me, and good, since the internet and real life have brought me interesting and hot men, but no one to have a real relationship with. I tell her I would die and go to heaven if a man my age would want to date me for real, but so far, that hasn't happened. She flatters me by saying that's because I look 10 years younger. You wouldn't think so if you saw me first thing in the morning. 
I say, to deflect the compliment. I always deflect compliments. I haven't met the man with the white shirt yet, but it isn't very long after I do meet him that I tell him about the MS. I tell him about the everything because that's how it is with him. He feels so real, so good. I also don't deflect his compliments, which are many, because with him, I believe what he's saying to me. I believe what I see happening in those dark, shiny eyes. I'm a hopeless romantic. I never learn. Anyway, the matchmaker asks me to show her photos of my ex-husband. Wow, cute, she says, which is what everyone says, gotta hate them all. Then she wants to see photos of my favorites. She means men I've been with since the ex-husband. I haven't met the man with the white shirt yet, so I don't even know the real meaning of favorite. I don't know yet what it's like to want to drop everything for someone you just saw across a room. I don't know yet what it's like to feel understood and connected on a deep, magical level. So I scroll through the photos on my phone because, yeah, I have a folder of favorites. There's revival, of course. Wow, nice, she says. Then I show her cute, crazy guy. Whoa, so adorable. Which, yeah, no kidding, but too bad about the crazy. I save hot actor for last. She practically fans herself as she scrolls through his photos. What? Oh my. Can I see him? Wait, really? <laughs> I feel that same mixture of pride and also, what the fuck, since everyone always seems a little too surprised that I could have had a thing with him. Oh, he's an actor. It was just a fun thing for a few months while he was in town. Amazing. Yeah, it is amazing. What an amazingly fun experience this sexual liberation has been. I was once a bored wife, and now I'm shamelessly showing a total stranger a folder full of hot guys on my phone. The perks of a skewered, broken heart. But I'm showing her these guys because I'm paying her to find me a version of them that wants to have an actual relationship. This will be so easy, she says. Because she loves me, remember? We always love each other, the single ladies of Toronto. We're always so much better than any guys we meet. It's the worst. A few weeks later, the matchmaker matches me with a man who is quite possibly the handsomest man I have ever seen. We meet for drinks and a nice summer stroll. He makes me a bit nervous, and I end up getting a little too drunk. We make out a bit at the end of the night, but nothing more. A few days later, I text him about plans for the weekend, and he texts back simply, You are an amazing person, and I'd be crazy not to keep you in my atmosphere, but I don't want to date you. The words hit me hard. Really fucking hard. I don't want to date you. Later, I will focus on atmosphere. Because seriously, what? Me and my friends kill ourselves laughing at that statement, shouting, yo, you're great and all, but I just want to keep you in my atmosphere. 
<laughs> but in the moment, seeing that text, I think, of course, of course you don't want to date me. Why would anyone? I spiral quickly. It's disproportionate to the situation since I've only known him for one week. So who cares really? But it's not about him. It's about the rejection. It's about everything. It's about the parade of men who came after the husband's bomb. The men who, yes, fill me with some kind of modern gal conquistador's pride when I show off the folder of favorites, but none of whom really want anything more than to sleep with me or to keep me in their atmospheres, not actually date me. I email the matchmaker the next day to say it didn't work out with handsome dude. As days pass, I shake it off. I try to enjoy the summer. I invite Revival back into my bed, and then tall, smart musician, who's become my good friend and confidant, but sporadically we still do that thing because that's what friends do in these modern times. And then, just as summer's coming to an end, I see the man with the white shirt walk through a doorway and everything stops just like that in a single moment when I see him smile for the first time everything slows right down the earth tilts a little and there is no sound or space or time when he sees me it's confirmed although we haven't even talked yet and when we do talk We never want to stop looking at each other. We never want to stop talking. And don't. Only one week after I first see the man with the white shirt across that crowded cafe, I email the matchmaker to tell her to take me off the roster because I've met the most amazing guy and I want to see where it goes. You're listening to Alone, a love story, written by me, Michelle Parisi. It's a CBC original podcast. The story editor is Veronica Simmons. Alone is mixed and produced by me and Veronica in our hometown of Toronto. I've got a lot more to share with you at cbc.ca slash alone. The stories behind the story I'm telling, photos, and a lot about music. Stick with me. I want to tell you about the man with the white shirt.
Hey, there's another CBC original podcast I want to tell you about. Someone Knows Something. In season four, host David Ridgen investigates the murder of an Ontario man who was killed by a bomb that was mailed to his home. Subscribe in Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to Alone. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.